I'm an electrical engineer. I'm a computer scientist. I'm sort of a mechanical engineer. I'm a biomedical engineer, right? Like I understand all those disciplines, but I'm not going to under, I, so if I am a biomedical, you want me to talk about tissue engineering, which I'm not going to be able to do that, but I could tell you about the, the fundamental aspects of the body and how the body reacts to different devices, right? So I really am a generalist. So what's the difference? Um, I'm probably not going to be the one that solves a fundamental theory behind some device, but I'm the one that's going to be able to build it and work with the clinicians to deploy it and test it and save the world. This is the Visible Voices podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word from the host and creator of Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Hi, this is Mike Pratz from the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Gel stands for Gathering Evidence from the Literature. In each episode, we closely examine the latest research in the field of point-of-care ultrasound. Our goal is to make this information easily digestible for clinicians so that we can all use this valuable modality safely to help our patients. Hi, audience. Thank you so much for joining. And FYI, Mike Pratz is from The Ohio State University. Today's special guest is from The Ohio State University. I'm going to start by reading you an announcement about Dr. Ayanna Howard. Dr. Howard has been appointed to the Board of Directors of Motorola Solutions. Her deep knowledge in robotics, human-computer interaction, and artificial intelligence supports the company's focus on human-centered design, leveraging the power of AI, with trusted safeguards to ensure it's used fairly and responsibly. That's Ayana. So if you remember Sesame Street, where they would dedicate the episode to a letter, I'm going to dedicate today's episode to the letter E. E for educator, engineer, entrepreneur, the Ingenuity podcast, and finally expert. So Ayana Howard, PhD. She became the dean of the Ohio State University College of Engineering in March of 2021. She previously was the chair of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Interactive Computing in the College of Computing. She's a founder and director of the Human Automation Systems Lab as well. Her career is in higher education, NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, and the private sector. You're going to hear more about this. She's the founder and president of the board of directors of Zyrobotics. Now, it turns out Ayana and I know each other from college. Well, I know her, she knows me. We have 0.5 to 1 degree of friends in common. Between pre-medicine and engineering, there's lots of overlap. Moreover, and I wanted to use the word moreover, uh, we grew up in the same era. So we connected on the Betty Crocker mini bake oven, or I think it's the easy bake oven, as well as the bionic woman. Let's get to the conversation where when we start, Ayana is telling us about a book she's written. You were part of authoring a book sex, race, and robots, how to be human in the age of AI. Tell us about that. And I mean, you are subject matter expert in a few topics and AI is now on your portfolio. So, so yeah, go deep. Yeah. So, um, artificial intelligence with all of my technology from the robotics and healthcare to even the early work I did at NASA with, you know, future Mars exploration, it always had intelligence, artificial intelligence on the robot. So, and I think of that as the brain of the robot. How do you get the robot to be smarter? So I've been um, an artificial intelligence expert. Um, In fact, my PhD thesis back in 99, my first paper in 1994 had neural networks in it. So this has been a while. Um, And what happened was I was starting to 
realize that the this world of artificial intelligence was really impacting and creeping into society without society really understanding what it was, um, and even without developers understanding the ramifications. Um, because we're trained, you know, as engineers and computer scientists, you know, to to make solutions and solve problems. We're not necessarily trained to think about the ramifications, like the things about, well, just because we can, should we? Or if we are, how do we mitigate any potential issues or ramifications. Um, and I started to worry about that. In the healthcare domain, these decisions are made all the time. So myself and my students, you know, we are always conscious about, well, we can do this, but maybe we shouldn't do this because the, the negative ramifications are, you know, extreme. And so with the book, what I want to do was uh, threefold. One, I wanted to talk to the general public that wasn't technologists about their role and provide some understanding about artificial intelligence and what it's doing and how it's being used both for us, but also against us. And so understanding why things such as, you know, scandals with Facebook and, and Twitter, why, why this is happening. Um, so wanted to get that message out. The other was to the developers to really start changing our mindset about how we think about our role in this um, and how do we advocate for good technology, even though we still want to do cool things. Um, and then the third was weaving my personal story, because I, I worry that because of all the negative press around artificial intelligence and, and robotics and computer science and engineering, that, you know, the next generation is going to be like, yeah, I, I don't want to go into that field. Um, and that would be a national disaster. That would be a crisis um, because innovation comes from the intersection of, of engineering and creativity. Um, and so the other was to weave my story, just my personal story of, of many times being one and only the first, um, and just kind of weaving that also into why some of these technologies are so biased and where does this history come from? Uh, and so those were kind of the three, three threads that were weaved together in, in the Audible book. When many people think about science and they think about engineering and technology, they think it must be unbiased without sexism, without racism, how can that be? For the audience members that are wondering about that and are a little skeptical of, of the premise, which I'm, I'm on board, like we know these things are woved in because who's designing, who's programming, who's testing, on whom are these things being tested? How does that make its way in and how can we approach things more ethically? Yeah, so artificial intelligence is not what we call value neutral. Um, which is this aspect of, well, it's technology. It has no human characteristics. But the fact is, is every single algorithm is designed and tested and evaluated by a human. Um, so as an example, and there are some old examples even with physical technology, but imagine you're creating a healthcare diagnosis system for, uh, say, cancer. And you create this beautiful algorithm that can help identify uh, small small potential uh, lumps or tumors in the body uh, through uh, imaging. So you're like, oh, this is great, great algorithm. And then you test it and you test it and like, oh, it's 100% accurate and you deploy it. But guess what? Because the person who was testing or the team that was testing, maybe they were all between the ages of 20 and 30. Maybe they were all men. Maybe they were all from European descent. And guess what? They never tested it on women. 
They never tested it on kids. They never tested on elderly adults. They never tested it on non-Europeans. And it's because they just didn't see that that, 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 that those individuals weren't in the data set for testing because, you know, they were like, oh, here's people. And, and, and that's the problem. And then it's deployed. In a lot of cases, what we find is these systems that are out there that are being deployed, like I talked about, you know, the healthcare and radiology, these, these systems are actually being deployed and are out there being used and they haven't necessarily been tested adequately on all the different target demographics that these systems are being used by and for. Yeah. I think a classic example that maybe everybody may be more familiar with is seatbelts. And the development of seatbelts, um, you know more about this than I, that initially when they were tested and deployed, the seatbelt was not made for tested in women and specifically pregnant women. And the sort of the belt that comes across the chest and across the lap caused some problems and negative outcomes that the whole automobile industry had to relook at seatbelts and seatbelt design. Seatbelts, uh, another very, uh, maybe people don't know this, is also airbags. Um, what happened was there was a study that came out that said, huh, women are dying at a higher rate than men in these car accidents. What's going on? Um, and they looked at all the testing data. And guess what? I guess women don't drive because they didn't test adequately the airbags on women. So, I mean, I mean, it's things like that. And a lot of times it's not that you can talk about, oh, well, it's a developer and it's a testers. They should have. It's because they just don't see it. If they, if you, you have a lived experience. And so the things that are common, the things that are familiar, you're going to recognize. And very rarely do you recognize the absence of the opposite. And it's just our human nature. You're a sci-fi fan, I believe. Um, so, you know, what were some inspirational sci-fi films or books that really, contributed to your path? Um, so I would say the the one that contributed in terms of why I went to go into robotics and, and engineering and computer science was The Bionic Woman. Um, and so the story, and it's, it's hilarious now because, you know, I'm, a, I'm an older adult, but as a kid, it made perfect sense. And so I was always into, you know, the Star Trek and, you know, Battlestar Galactica. And these are all the, the early original versions, not the redone ones. Um, and superheroes, which of course was part of the whole science fiction, science fantasy. And I remember um, in middle school, and even now you have to talk about what you want to do in your life. And, and so, you know, as an 11, 12-year-old, you have to decide what you want to do for the rest of your life until 100. And I remember thinking and trying to figure out what is it that I want to do. And I remember really liking the bionic woman. And, and I was like, oh, what I want to do is I want to create the bionic woman. Now, I also like Wonder Woman, but, you know, that was fantasy. But the bionic woman was real, right? Because it was like real people and it just made sense. And so I wanted to build a bionic woman and, and that's what I wanted to do, <laughs> which again, now I look at it as like, yeah, right. Bionic woman was real. But at the time that made sense. And Wonder Woman was a fantasy like Amazonian, like that doesn't possibly exist anywhere in the real world. I am. Um... I, so audience, in case you're wondering, uh, Dean Howard and I grew up in the same era. So I also uh, was a big fan of Bionic Woman. And in fact, I have a very clear visual of her turning her head to the side and moving her hair behind her ear to activate like her, her uh, bi bionic hearing <laughs> yes. sense. Uh, 
You and I also um, were gifted when we were young, the Easy Bake Oven. We talked a little bit about that, building recipes, building, building, building. Um, and you also uh, worked a lot with erector sets. Um, how did these toys also play a role in your journey? Yeah, so I was fortunate because um, I had a family that was a technology-based family. Uh, but I also had pseudo, I would say, a traditional home. I mean, we always sat down for dinner. Um, you always did vacations together. So, you know, I didn't realize that this was an unusual thing. Um, and so growing up, my parents would put things in front of me that were just creative. And so I would get the Betty Crocker bake set, but I would also get the, um, it was basically the Barbie knockoff. It was called the Sunshine Family, which was back then it was the Barbie knockoff, right? So I would get that, um, you know, I had dresses, but then I would get the Erector set and the Radio Shack Radio Shack uh, kits where you had to learn how to solder. And my dad would take me out in the yard and I climbed trees with my dress. Right. And so it was just this whole, you know, I, and I, w I loved it now because there was no box of, well, a girl's does this and a boy's does this. It was like, here, here are all the opportunities and what you enjoy. You just enjoy and, and really lean into it. Um, and so that was great. I mean, I learned how to solder when I was like in the third grade. I don't know what you would give a soldering iron to a kid for. Like now that just seems craziness. But back then, <laughs> it was just like, oh, yeah, sure. Just don't burn the house. Right. It's just it's just amazing that those were opportunities. Yeah, I think that all the tools in your toolbox, all the skills in your skill set, um, one of the skills and tools that you acquired was an MBA. And one of the E's of today's episode is entrepreneur. Can you speak a little bit about that? The MBA was because I was on a trajectory of not doing well. So I'd always been one of these individuals that either A, if you told me I couldn't do it, that's a challenge. So I would do it and do it really exceedingly well. But that also meant that I was always overachieving. And so when I was at NASA, um, my very, I was, I was leading teams. I, I became a, a manager, which meant that you were evaluated as a personal contributor, as an engineer, but also as a manager. And I remember my very first uh, review where I was reviewed as a manager versus as just an engineer. It was like, it wasn't that good. And I was like, what's going on? Like, we delivered product. We had great technology. Why is this review not so, so well done? And I talked to my supervisor and it was like, oh, well, you know, maybe we should send you to, you know, some training schools about how to manage people and things like that. And being the overachiever, I was like, yeah, no, I'm going to get my MBA because that's where I can learn how to do this effectively which is why I went to go get my MBA so I could be a better manager because negative reviews was not an option in my life. It was one of the best decisions I ever did though. So I'd love um, to hear more about that because now in your role uh, as Dean uh, at the Ohio State, my guess is that you're doing a lot of managing people, managing teams and administrating, which is a little different perhaps in some of the granular building uh, engineering work. So, you know, what do you think you did gain from that MBA and what does a day in the life of Dean Howard um, look like? Yeah. So interesting enough, back then, because I was at NASA, my, the threads that I chose was strategy 
and uh, what we call managing difficult people, which are basically engineers. So those were the threads that I took. So I took all the courses around strategy and also how do you manage creative people that don't necessarily say yes, which is really helpful as dean. Uh, so one of the things as dean, especially at the Ohio State University, is thinking about the strategy of growth, thinking of the strategy around innovation, around um motivating both students and faculty to to take engineering to the next, 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 um, which is really helpful because it's about organizational behavior. How do you do design structures so that there, we remove barriers from creativity and implementation? Like all those things um, I learned through the MBA and have weaved throughout my career in terms of getting better and better and, and more skilled at it. And then the managing aspect, I, I, engineers are beautiful faculty and students are wonderful people, but the, <laughs> they are wonderful and creative because they are allowed to operate in a norm where there really isn't a structure. But in order for that to work, it means that you have to think about how do you manage. Um, and I always say it's it's kind of shepherding cats. You, you're really not managing. It's that you, you have all these cats that are independent. They're going all their, their different ways, but you have to get them all to align to a vision. Um, and with the MBA and the kind of courses I took, those were perfect to really understand the theory of human nature, the cognitive science behind it that have become really, really helpful nowadays. Do you have a way that you approach individuals with whom you have to have difficult conversations? I do. Um, so one thing is I'm an optimist. I think that everyone wants to have a reason for, for their career, a reason for living, a reason for their life. Um, and so my usual homework before I have any difficult conversations and to figure out what is, what is the thing that drives them? What is the thing that they're passionate about? What is the thing that will put them toward the, the next level? And whether it's performance or it's that they're bad behavior, you know, what can, change that. Um, and so that's really my homework anytime before it's like figuring that out. Um, and then from there, trying to carve the conversation so that they own that and they realize it. Um, I find that I can't just say, well, this is what you have to do because I know that's what you want to do. My job is to ask the right questions to lead you to the realization that, oh, you know what? I'm in the wrong job or I'm not doing it correctly because I just don't like it this way. Uh, and I find that that way, it puts us in a win-win. You own it because you've came to that realization. And it's not because I told you to, right? And and it then allows you to still be independent, still be self-sufficient. But I've achieved my goal because now you are on the trajectory that I need you to be in order to enhance the overall vision of the college. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. When people come to it themselves, and it's much more powerful. It is. I will tell you, it takes a lot more time. And I think, and I'm very patient. And I think that's a benefit and an asset. Because if you're not patient, it could be, it could get kind of frustrating because you're like, wait, ugh, this is like taking too long to actually go through this process. These difficult conversations and uh, the, the cats that you describe in engineering, you know, medicine has a type A overachievers, test takers, used to being told how intelligent they are. In fact, people make jokes about doctors that doctors think they're the most intelligent people in the room. And when one of my MBA friends said, and they're not, and I, <laughs> which, you know, fair. And 
what I've seen, fortunately, unfortunately, I've used it as a means to learn is a lot of leaders in medicine I've seen actually avoid difficult conversations. And I'm wondering, and we understand why you, you sort of just shared why they're hard. They take time. You have to do some of your homework and you have to be willing to sometimes have some, you know, ask some tough questions or figure out how to best phrase your questions so they are effective and come across well. I mean, there's a lot of thought and energy that gets put into these conversations. Again, I've seen people in leadership in medicine avoid these and hand them off or just not have them. Do you see the same? And what are your thoughts on that? Um, I will say I do see the same um, in non-effective leaders. And when I say non-effective is, is that they may have temporary gains but in the long run, the, they, they have an environment or a culture where um, the individuals, employees, the talent is frustrated. They, they, they are looking for the next exit as soon as possible. And the leader themselves is kind of, in some cases, they might check out. They just like, they don't feel that passion and that love. Um, so short-term gains, but in the long term, it's, it's, it really isn't a good place to be. Um, and yes, I've seen that. I mean, we've seen that in sometimes in companies and corporate entities um, in, in that. And unfortunately, having tough conversations, um, it, it evokes even in the brain, right? Like we are risk averse, you know, the fight or flight. And we have tough conversations. You really are in that modality of, of the fight reflex versus flight, which is like, oh, I'll give it to someone else. I don't have to deal with that. Um, and so even if you think about your your own uh, self-health and, and psychological response, when you're having difficult conversations, you are at a heightened awareness. You know, you have a little bit faster heartbeat and things like that. Uh, but when you make that part of your routine and you make that part of your own structure, those actually diminish. It becomes less of a, of a fight reflex. But getting to that stage, again, it takes a growth process. It seems it can be learned and it gets easier the more you do it because the people I've seen who are very skilled do it, do it often, kind of welcome it and it becomes easier and you get better at it. You do. And I will tell you at some point it gives you energy, um, which is a weird thing because, you know, I remember like one of my very first difficult conversations uh, it was, you know, back in the day. And I remember like my hands were sweating and I was like, oh my gosh, how is this going to go? And now it's like, oh, when can we do it? Tomorrow? <laughs> it's just like, and you just like, it's almost like, it's like a race. Like when you, if you're any athlete, right? Like that first game, you're like, oh my gosh, how am I going to do? And at the end you're like, oh, this is easy. We're going to make the national championship, like without a doubt. <laughs> I like that. Zyrobotics. Tell us about Zyrobotics. So Zyrobotics is a nonprofit corporation that provides um, basically technology for children with special needs in the education and therapy domain. So Zyrobotics um, started and was a spinoff from the lab research at Georgia Tech. And the way that it happened was I was designing technologies for um, engaging children in therapy interventions and even education, because uh, with that age demographic, education is tightly coupled to therapy and interventions. It just kind of goes hand in hand. 
And one summer, uh, my grad student had come up with a proposal um, opportunity from National Science Foundation called i And what it was, was a training program for academics to think outside of the lab, to think about the translation of their research into a company, entrepreneurship. And because I wanted to support her and she was like, I don't know if I want to do a startup or if I want to go into corporate or academia. She's like, you know, would you support me in this? Because it required an, an entrepreneurial lead who was a senior grad student or, or a postdoc. So I was like, sure. So wrote up the proposal with her. Uh, we submitted it. I was the PI because it was based on the technology in the lab. And we were accepted. And this was the second cohort. So uh, we participate in this. And part of this was you have to go out and interview people that aren't your friends. And talk about you know their needs and their desires and talk about your technology in some cases. And they're not your friends, which basically means you can't go to your friends and like, hey, give me some good responses. These are like strangers and even cold calling and going through that process. And at the end of it, my student said, yeah, I'm not into this entrepreneurship. But I was like, oh my gosh, like people outside of the lab really appreciate what we're doing. And there was such a like, oh, why isn't this out there in the market? There's really a need. And if you designed it this way and this way. Um, and so at that point, I realized that we need to get the research out of the lab. So uh, we secured some funding uh, from the state of Georgia, which basically works with academics uh, through a program called uh, Venture Lab. And a year later, Zyrobotics was founded um, and patented the technology from Georgia Tech and then launched and, and never looked back. But again, it was because of a student who I was trying to support and mentor, not because I really wanted to do this crazy entrepreneurship thing, but I realized that there was a need and I kind of liked it. Yeah. You you mentioned earlier about being um, the only, or uh, at times being in the room and being the only. And how how does that play a role in your mentoring? Um, so the role I have just in mentoring uh, a lot of times, there's direct mentoring and then there's just the mentoring of showing up in a space so people can communicate and you can share your story. Um, so my role and the way I think about mentoring is um, I'm fairly transparent and honest. Um, I didn't realize how powerful some of my stories were, um, especially when I found out that individuals are still going through the same thing where they might be in a space and they just because of the way they look or the way they sound or speak or talk, uh, they're e effectively dismissed without even any due process. Um, and so sharing my stories and then also, you know, how I overcame, but also being truthful, like those things hurt. And so it's, it's not you that feels hurt. No, those things are hurt. And these are kind of the things you can do to get over the hurt and not make it personal and, and things like that. Um, and so that's kind of the showing up in the space. And then the direct mentoring, um, every so often, um, I will find a student that just reminds, I won't say they remind me of me, but just, it's just like, oh my gosh, like they would be so amazing if they just need, you know, had someone to reach out to, to push them to the next level, or they're going through a couple of things. And if I don't intervene, we are going to have this person removed from our, our world and our society. And this person needs to be amazing and great and supported. Um, and so those are the things I do around direct mentoring. 
I've taken to um, saying things to people, sometimes with whom I have a direct mentoring, but sometimes, you know, there's more peripheral um, involvement, but saying things that I needed to hear or some that maybe you say to yourself, but hearing them aloud is really impactful. So one of the things I tell people is trust your gut, trust your gut, trust your gut, your gut and what your gut's telling you is different than what my gut, but trust your gut. The other thing, um, and this is again, a little bit of healthcare medicine, I, I I say this mostly to women because I find it's women that question themselves. Um, I say, you're not making it up. You're not making this up. Like, this is real. You're not making it up. <laughs> um, to just, and that goes back to, you know, encouraging people to trust themselves and trust their lived experience. Um, yeah. And, and there's this relief that I see. Yeah, I, I know. It's, it's some, um, and again, you know, like you said, we're about the same generation, um, and, and you still, you would think that, you know, umpteen years later, you know, things are better. I will say that, but things, some things have not changed. And I mean, that's unfortunate, but I think now we have a lot more of us in the field that can actually say things like, you know, trust your gut. Mine is we're the canary in the mine. <laughs> right. We are the ones that sniff out the, the bad stuff before everyone else. And so, yeah, when, when, when you, when you think so, like get out of the mine, just, just get out. Cause you do not want to be the, the dead canary in the mine. You want to be the live canary that escapes. The name of the podcast is the visible voices. And one of my uh, common questions I ask to guests is when did you first realize you had a voice and when did you start using it? Now you use your voice and your voice is powerful. And it, a bit of what you shared, you know, just being in the room or sharing your stories, sharing your journey is using your voice. But uh, when did you realize you had that? Um, so there was two instances in time. So one, when I realized that um, I needed to figure out what my voice was. And then the other one, it was like, I realized that I had to be more vocal um, so the first was, again, this was at NASA and I um, was leading a team. So it was the very first team. And I remember um, there was this perception. And this is when I first realized that as a woman engineer, I was an anomaly, which I hadn't, I really hadn't faced that so directly. Um, and it was when I, I was leading a team and one of the engineers had basically mistaken me for one of the secretaries. And we didn't call them administrators. We called them secretaries then. Um, and I was, I was a team lead. Right. And I just remember I was trying to figure out, you know, I, I just felt such an emotion and I didn't understand what it was. Right. Um, and I, you know, my hands were shaking and I, I just remember this very explicitly. Um, and I was, you know, I did like the things that, you know, my, my grandmother used to say, do things with grace. And I, you know, was like, oh, no, 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 it's okay about the mistake, you know, and just moved on. Um, but that was when I realized that um, I had this emotion. And I need to figure out what that voice was. So I didn't feel that emotion anymore. Um, and so that was the first thing. It was like, I got to. And so after that, it was like things like, you know, there was only one woman's bathroom. And my lab was in the basement. You know, women's bathroom was like on the second floor. I was like, look, knock. I'm coming in. If you don't like it, you can step out. Right. And so just little things like that, I would just do, even though sometimes it was scary, but I was like, if I felt anything, I said I was going to push myself to get through that feeling. 
Um, and so that was the way that I grew that voice. And so now I just don't even, I don't, it's not that I don't care, but I don't feel the emotion anymore. Yeah. I'm really glad you share that because I think the power in that is, and what people may not realize is because when you feel that emotion, that's distracting and that absorbs energy and that takes away energy from you inventing, from you building, from you doing your job and administrating and leading the best of your ability. And not everybody has to deal with some of these distractions. And so it's a, it's a really healthy way. I like that a lot. I'm going to circle back to NASA because the audience is like, oh my goodness, she worked at NASA. And uh, I think what I practice saying Jet Propulsion Lab, Jet Propulsion Lab, because it sounds super cool. Uh, tell us about your work, NASA, Mars, uh, drones. <laughs> so I was um, at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, JPL NASA, uh, for um, oh, a lot, a lot, a lot of years. Uh, and it was only because I started there after my freshman year of college um, working at NASA. And primarily because the two summers before that in high school, I worked at Caltech um, as a computer scientist, database administrator. So it was just, of course, we're going to work at JPL because it's like right in my backyard. Um, and so those early years really prepared me for uh, working on the future in terms of robotics and things like that. And my very first robotics project was primarily after I had my received my PhD. Before that, I was doing artificial intelligence and things around terrain classification and, and other things where I was using AI. NASA does use AI, by the way, um, but for um, more terrestrial applications versus Mars applications. And so the the first real project where, you know, this was the, the project I was leading, uh, we had landed Sojourner uh, back early a few years before that. Uh, then I was working, uh, but still working on my PhD, uh, and that was Sojourner. And what happened was after that, there became a Mars strategy. So NASA J developed a Mars strategy, JPL was leading that, about uh, landing rovers and also sending uh, observers or satellites uh, basically every two-ish two years uh, to really figure out what was this Mars thing. So Mars exploration strategy. And as part of that, they had really bold ambitions about how do you explore, how do you quote unquote, in theory, colonize Mars. Uh, and so with my team, and there was different teams that were kind of looking at how to do this. And so for my team, my task was to think about long range traversal. So over the horizon traversal, i.e. if you put a rover on Mars and you can't see where you're going, how do you explore and navigate if you can't necessarily see where you're going? So the scientists or the humans can't say, go here. Um, and so that's when I started working directly with scientists and thinking about designing methods and expert systems, knowledge extraction from non-engineers, non-computer scientists, um, and really thinking about uh, this, this system, which was humans and robots together, was sort of the first start of thinking about this future of how do we do this. Um, and so that evolved into... Um, then thinking about spacecraft landing, the same kind of regard. Um, and that's with the, and you, you call them drones, but basically uh, spacecrafts that land by themselves, landers. Um, how do you find a place to land? Because during that time, uh, there's so little time to actually get direct human input from Earth 
the the lander has to think by itself. Uh, and so thinking about that, uh, how do you do that safely? And part of that was because we had had a um, couple of uh, mission failures, <laughs> including one that smack landed in the surface of Mars uh, without, um, it wasn't supposed to happen. But I had that task. And so just every single task was really building on designing this hybrid human rover robot system. And how do you design the intelligence around that? It's amazing. I wonder, you know, chefs or cooks, when they go to a restaurant, you know, look at the menu, tear apart the food and like, I can make this, I can make this. I wonder when you go to Radio Shack or when you watch a sci-fi movie, are you like, that's not real. That's real. I could do that. That's good. Like, you know, what is your mindset when you're watching, you know, when you're engaging with technology um, from a layperson perspective? So um, from a layperson perspective, when I look at science fiction um, nowadays, I have two modes. Um, one is, you know, I have to sometimes go like, yeah, that's not real. Like if it's really not real, then it's kind of like, yeah, this just totally ruined my my mood. But a lot of times, I mean, unless it's a B movie, a lot of times there's some grounding in science and technology and engineering. And so at that point, it's like, ooh, I wonder how that can be done. And can it be done in this way? Or it's like, oh, maybe I can repurpose that thought and that idea and do it in this aspect. Um, and so I do look at it with kind of both thought patterns, um, but I don't intentionally try to do it because I want to enjoy the movie and the experience. But every so often I'll be like, ooh, that's kind of cool. I cannot tell you how much I loved this conversation. Now, before I get to the recent wrap up, here's a word from the host and creator of Rebel EM podcast. Rebel EM stands for Rational Evidence-Based Evaluation of Literature in Emergency Medicine. We are a website that helps you keep up with the latest and the greatest, cut down knowledge translation time, and improve patient care. Audience, you understand by now, I loved this conversation. And I enjoyed in particular when Ayana and I were speaking about mentorship, leadership, communication. I appreciated how honest she was and how she's navigated her own leadership and in administration. A piece of the conversation that you didn't hear was about how much she shared that she loves working with clinicians. And I'll say that completely tickled me. Health design, human-centered design is a particular interest. And the work she's doing at The Ohio State and even at prior institution really focuses on the health of neonates, premature infants, and children. And that's good stuff. Follow this woman and audience, we'll see you next week. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare equity and current trends. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. You can listen on whatever platform you subscribe to podcasts. Our team includes Stacey Gitlin and Dr. Giuliano DePorto. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please contact me, Risa at thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm on Twitter at Risa E. Lewis. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.